tonight. And that is that we're uh, still looking for a couple people, responsible adult type people, so I'm excluded from that category, uh, to do childcare for us tonight. So if you can do that uh, this evening, come and talk to myself or Pastor Keith and we can point you in the right uh, direction uh, for that if you're connected with us here at Jericho Ridge. Well, uh, I want to welcome you here. If you're new or visiting with us in particular, the fall is a great time uh, to jump into the life of Jericho because there's a lot of on-ramps for you uh, to get connected with people around here, and particularly our fall September uh, teaching series through until Thanksgiving is uh, about the wisdom of friendship. And so we're talking a little bit from the Old Testament uh, wisdom literature, uh, which is that center section in the middle of your Bible where really old but really smart people wrote stuff down uh, for us. And let me do a quick recap for us of the first couple times uh, and the emphases we've been putting on uh, the elements, different elements of friendship. So on September the 10th, right after uh, we had 10th, 12th, what was the date? I don't even remember. September. September goes by in such a blur. Uh, They first... Sunday after Labor Day, how's that? We talked about the why of friendships. So we talked a little bit about what is it that really is hardwired into us that God has actually created us as relational beings. And so therefore, friendship is a component part of that. We looked in the book of Ecclesiastes about a metaphor there that says the two are better than one from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4. And then on the 19th, we looked at the how of friendships. So last week, Pastor Keith talked about how friendship develops in situations where common interests and goals are found, and then you add time into that equation. And that can, doesn't always, but has the highest likelihood of resulting uh, in friendship. And so we looked at some people with impossible names to pronounce uh, who were beloved and faithful helpers and served, Paul says with me, in the Lord's work. And as they served together, that drew them into a friendship uh, and connection with one another. And so we've looked at the why, we've looked at the how. Today we're going to look at some of the what of friendships. What do good friends do and what do good friends not do? And we're going to define our terms a bit more clearly uh, from the book of Proverbs this morning and so that we understand and come to understand that when we talk about friendship, a true friend, the Bible says, is one that's born for adversity. So let's pray as we look into God's word uh, together this morning. God, we say thanks for this opportunity to gather and connect with one another in this place. Uh, We pray that you would open our hearts and open our ears to hear what it is that you have to teach and share with us from your word this morning. We believe that your word is truth and that it guides us in all aspects of our life and relationship. And so we submit ourselves to you and to one another this morning in this place. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we, uh, as we talk about this topic of friendship, uh, I have a bit of a confession to make. And that confession is that, and some of you will come and deride me ceaselessly after uh, our time together this morning for this, but I just have to get this off my chest. I'm not really that big into Facebook. So don't get me wrong. I love the fact that Facebook helps me keep 
in touch with people who have moved away or high school people uh, from Ontario or college buddies that have moved away. I love the fact that it keeps me up to date on relatives whom I really don't feel like calling or emailing. But when I am put in the situation where I have to do, I've read enough status updates that I can actually have a meaningful and productive and healthy conversation with them. So I like all of those things about Facebook. I like that keeps the conversation moving. I love that it reminds me about birthdays and events of people. I don't always follow through on all of that stuff, so sometimes I feel like I don't want it to remind me of those things. But, you know, uh, the reason, I think the reason that I'm not crazy about Facebook, you know, other than the fact that they change their privacy policies all the time, so who knows what personal, someone probably now is masquerading as Brad Sumner somewhere because of my Facebook account. Uh, But uh, the thing that I think I'm a little bit, I wonder about Facebook, my personal beef, is what it's actually doing to the term friend. Um, the term friend. On Friday, this Friday, a movie's going to be released in theaters called The Social Network. And this is uh, a very Hollywood version of the rise of Facebook based on a book. And the tagline for the film is very, very interesting to me. The tagline is, you don't get 500 million friends without making a few enemies. Which is an interesting concept and interesting usage of the word friends. The, the movie is very, very, very loosely based on the book, The Accidental Billionaires, The Founding of Facebook, A Tale of Sex, Money, Genius, and Betrayal. Sounds like a good friendship to me. Uh, All of which I think highlights the issue that I'm just not sure when Facebook uses the term friend, that they use it in the same way that I think I would like to use the term friend. And I mean, for those of you who are on Facebook, think about some of the people that you have accepted friend requests from. All right, so you have a picture of some of those categories, that category in your mind. And, I mean, are these people that really you want at your funeral? Are these people that you would want at your wedding? Or just, are you just, like, if you're kind of like me, I'm not that judicious in my friend requests. Every now and then I check in to see who's friends with my brother-in-law. I think, oh, he has a few more friends than I should. I should put out a few more friend requests and try and, you know, keep up with my brother in law on Facebook. But he was a youth pastor for a lot of years, so all of his kids want to be friends with him, so it's a little bit difficult for me. But truth be told, that's kind of how I treat friends on Facebook. So my suspicion is that many of the people who with whom maybe you and certainly I am friends with on Facebook uh, are maybe not necessarily in that category of authentic, genuine, long-term relationships. And people that when life gets hard would stand by you. Maybe not. Maybe you're much more judicious in your accepting a friend's request than I am. Uh, But my suspicion is that we have as many or more friends as we do people around us in our real life relational spheres. And my suspicion also is that many of those people that Facebook uses the term friends for would do nothing if your life was in a, a challenging situation, would do nothing than post a nice little message for you wall to wall and hope that things would work out really well for you. So my challenge with 500 million people co-opting and using the word friend is that it's starting to get used in a very different way than we've used it historically and defined it. So to help us understand maybe a little bit more about the term friend, it helps us to understand the core purposes that God has given friends to us for in our lives. So I want to walk us through a few texts in the book of Proverbs this morning. And we're going to see that one of the reasons that God gives friends to us is it so that they can be a robust and very, very real support system in times of challenge 
in our lives. Proverbs 18 verse 24 sets the stage for us here by describing three groups of people in our lives. And these three groups of people, um, though we would use different language for them, Facebook, again, will put them all in the category of friends. So Proverbs 18.24 from the, the New International Version says this, A man or a person of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So in the, in the original uh, language that the Old Testament is written in, in Hebrew, this is actually a very, very confusing verse. And so different translations will take this in very different directions. Some of you might have a, like a New American Standard, which says a person with too many friends comes to ruin, which is a little bit intriguing to toy around with, which sounds a bit odd to us, especially if you're a raving extrovert. You're like, how could I have too many friends? It's just not humanly possible. Um, if you're an introvert, you totally understand what that verse means. Um, but... We, the wisdom of friendship that this text is driving at and trying to help us understand, I think, is that there are three spheres of connection in our lives. Uh, last week, Pastor Keith was uh, talking about my humming abilities and how they're really substandard, and it's very, very true. Singing and humming, not, not strengths for me. Drawing, also a little bit, not so great. So you have to bear with me in here as I kind of sketch out these three groups uh, of people up on the board here for you to see. Because what Proverbs 18.24 is driving at is that it uses the language of companions. We would probably use a different lang- uh, language. We would probably use the word maybe acquaintances. Might be a more contemporary word for us. So here's a bit of an example of what Proverbs 18.24 uh, is saying. So we have this, this sphere over here called acquaintances. And then for some of us, we have this second sphere, which is called friends. There's some overlap, maybe, maybe a lot of overlap, maybe not that much overlap. And then, who sticks closer than a brother? So there's the family sphere. And depending on your history and how large your family is, again, there might not be that much overlap between your friend circle and your family circle. I don't know. So, so Proverbs 18.24 reminds us of the fact that it's kind of a simple and obvious truth. There are three types of individuals. There's our acquaintances our friends, and our family. And sometimes they overlap, but not always. And so there are people we know in passing, obviously from work, from neighborhood, kids' schools, uh, being in one class with them, or from here at church. And for some people, the acquaintance sphere is a really, really large sphere. And um, there's different ways we could draw this out. There might be some people with with a a very large acquaintance sphere, uh, but then they might have maybe a smaller friendship sphere, and then maybe they have even a smaller still family sphere. So theirs is going to look a little bit different. There might be other obvious permutations of this. Somebody could have, um, somebody could have a very small acquaintance sphere, could have even a smaller friendship sphere that maybe doesn't even overlap at all, and then maybe have a really, really small family sphere. So there's, there's all kinds of different ways that you could kind of picture this. And what I want you to do uh, for a minute here for me is, if you've got a momentum journal with you, which is our strategy for helping keep you on track with the series, taking notes, and that's also a small group resource for you, and a prayer calendar so you know and can get to know other people in the life of the church. Uh, momentum journal, just open your, up your momentum journal or just do this on a scrap piece of paper or on your iPhone. There's probably an app for that. Um, just uh, draw out for you 
what does your sphere look like? What is, how would you think about or describe your acquaintance sphere, your friend's sphere, and your family sphere? Based on size, based on overlap. All right, does that make sense? All right, so either get that in your, in your head, or even better, take out a pen and paper and try and sketch it out a little bit. Feel where do those things overlap. Uh, maybe some of you have a family that you would put in that acquaintance category as well, because you you're not that close to them. They would, be, they would be, for whatever reasons, purposes, geography or otherwise, or experiences or broken relationships, they wouldn't maybe necessarily occupy that same kind of close-knit element as maybe some of the friends and, and other individuals in your life. So, all right. So just take a minute and draw that out. Get it in your mind. How does that look for you? The acquaintance sphere, the friend sphere, and the family sphere. All right. I want to make just a simple observation about this. And that is that this diagram, or thinking in these terms might actually help explain why some of you hate coming to church. And the reason I say that is, if you think about what is a Sunday morning gathering designed to do, and what is our thinking and purpose behind it? Well, there's sometimes 150, 250 people together here on a Sunday morning. Are all of them going to fit into these two circles? No. Most likely, we're creating a large pool of acquaintances that then has the potential to move into that second sphere. But some of you, particularly those of you who are introverted, you're not, you're not real hyped. The larger this circle gets, the more energy it drains from you and the less comfortable you feel in those types of settings. And so when you get in a room with 150 people, it makes you deeply understood, uh, uncomfortable, because you understand something at least about what the mode or the, the historical pattern of a place like a church is. And that's that there's an acquaintance sphere that's happening, and the hope is that somehow that that would begin to translate into a friendship sphere. Now, Pastor Keith was clear, and I thought it was a helpful reminder for you, that your pastoral team is not in the business of setting you up on play dates with one another. So it's our role to create those environments, but we don't push you from this sphere to this sphere, and there's no way that we can push you into this sphere unless somehow there's more weddings that are happening around here at Jericho Ridge and you guys are getting, you know, moving from the friendship sphere and then you're getting engaged. So that, that's the only exception to that rule, as near as I can tell. Uh, but sometimes, for those of you that are not necessarily wired with a huge acquaintance sphere, coming to a place like this, you just think, oh man, it's Sunday morning again. I'm going to go there, small talk. What am I going to talk about today? Oh, uh, the weather? Okay, well, I could at least talk about the weather. Jeez, I wish they could actually get out of the preseason, so at least we could start talking about something. So it, just I'll put that out there for you to help you understand maybe one of the reasons why a large-scale gathering like this is not as comfortable for some of you. And that some of you, what you're really looking for is this very small group of people who you want to walk with and do life together with. And so, in some ways, if you already have that, then this sphere becomes a little bit of an inconvenience in some ways. I'm not exactly sure how you would describe it, but something to think about and process in your conversations and try and figure out 
it, does that help answer some of those questions for you? Um, and what we're concerned about here at Jericho Ridge is that uh, in the language of Proverbs, that you would indeed have friends, that you would indeed be in a situation where you have close enough relationships with one or more people who can sharpen your life spiritually and in other areas of your life, hold you accountable and help you grow as a person into who God has designed you to be. But we can't make that happen in any way. We can create these types of environments and design and some, some flow, things like Group Connect and other things, to help move into those situations. But other than that, the responsibility really is up to the individual to continue to move in that direction. Does that make sense? All right. So you might want to play around with that a little bit in your conversations with people. Cheat. Look at somebody else's diagram and say, well, I don't think you have that many friends. That circle should be a little bit smaller. You know, whatever you want to, whatever you want to tell them about it. But because Proverbs says that each of these spheres plays a different role in our lives. If we just have a huge sphere of acquaintances and just many companions, we may in fact come to ruin, Proverbs says, because we may not have a group of friends that's going to stick with us closer than a brother. Each of these spheres has a role to play. Now, this whole question about brother versus friends, family versus friends, uh, the next verse in Proverbs addresses that in Proverbs 17, verse 10, because it talks about the power of proximity. Proverbs 17.10 says this, Never abandon a friend, either yours or your father, because when disaster strikes, you won't have to ask your brother for assistance. It's better to go to a neighbor than to a brother who lives far away. Now again, Proverbs here is not knocking family. It's just making a simple observation that in our, particularly in a highly mobile society such as ours, we may not have family members or an extended family uh, in the way that historically that has tended to be isolated geographically. A lot of us live fairly far away from our extended families. And so what Proverbs is trying to say here is, when you get into a crisis, there is an element of proximity that is helpful because you, you may not be able to reach out across the vast distances of time and space, but you may be able to go up the street, down the door, to a neighbor, to a friend, and be able to uh, access a particular element of support. And the verse is asking the question, when, when trouble comes knocking on your door, whose door do you go knocking on? And it's a question for us to think about and play around with a little bit. Because when you see people, this might help to answer a little bit also of the question of the purpose of a faith community in your life. Because when you see people regularly, when you have the opportunity uh, in the context of a relationship with them to inquire, how's it going really with you? And there's space of more than maybe the 10 minutes at coffee and connection time to ask and answer that question if you say, not so good these days, then you have to choose to place yourself in those situations where when disaster strikes, you don't have to go and try and figure out what does it look like to access the support of family that's far away? What does that look like to access the support of people that know you well and that you see regularly? And otherwise, you can be asking one of these circles to do something that it isn't designed to do or isn't capable of doing. Proverbs is saying, your family, if they're geographically distant and maybe not close to you in the same way, they may not be able to provide you with the same level of support as a friend who lives close to you and is in relational proximity to you as well. All right, does that make sense? Okay, so you may want to try and tweak a little bit 
your, your circles and try and think about the question now, not just of size, but also of proximity and geography. What does that look like for you in those particular situations? And in my own experience, I can remember reading another verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 17, and completely misunderstanding the role of these two circles, the friendship circle and the family circle. Because in the, in the New International Version, Proverbs 17:17 17, 17 reads this way. It says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Now, I have a brother, my only brother is six years younger than me, and I can read, I remember growing up reading this verse and thinking, finally, a verse in the Bible that makes sense to me. Uh, someone, you know, through all, uh, through deep space and time and history has peered through the centuries and describes my situation exactly. I was finally vindicated because the Bible finally said that my brother and I were destined to spend our lives fighting. A brother was born for adversity. His entire purpose of being born into our family was to create adversity in my life and therefore the Bible said it was true and therefore that described the situation. I finally got it. However, just read a little bit more carefully, obviously, into that verse and think it a little bit more carefully about the structure of it. And uh, you can understand a little bit of my misinterpretation of that verse. It's actually a little bit clearer in the New, International, uh, in the New Living Version where it says this, A friend is always loyal, but a brother is born to help in time of need. So when it says your brother is born for adversity, it doesn't mean that your siblings are designed to give you a hard time, although for some of you that may be true. But it means that, that both the friend and the family category can be those that support you in a time of need. Your friends, if they're loyal to you, can function in the same way as an idealized family could and should, being there to support you uh, through thick and through thin. And so the wisdom of friendship that's being expressed here is that in adversity, adversity, like almost nothing else, helps to clarify which circle will support me in which way. We may think that someone is in the acquaintance circle, but when push comes to shove and they end up standing with you in a time of need in your life, you may actually say, you know what, I just thought they were there as an acquaintance, but I think they're actually functioning in a way that a loyal and true friend might. Just as similarly, we could likely all think of situations where we would say, I thought that person was a real friend. And yet in my life, when I walked into that time of challenge and difficulty, they were not there for me in the way that I thought or asked or invited them to participate in my lives. May turn out that some people that we think as friends simply post nice platitudes on your wall on Facebook because they're too busy with their own lives to demonstrate a covenantal loyalty and support that you need in particular times. And this was certainly the case in the Old Testament with a guy named Job. Job is another part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. We don't have time to read all of Job's story, but it's a fascinating read, and it's well worth the effort. Because the Bible says that Job was an incredibly uh, secure person. Uh, financially, he was a rich man. Uh, he was rich in terms of his family relationships. He was well-respected in the life of his community. And then tragedy strikes Job in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he's reduced to poverty. All of his wealth is taken from him. His family dies, all of them, all of his uh, siblings and all of his uh, daughters and sons die in a single tragic accident. 
And then he gets sick so that he doesn't even have his health. And so in chapter 2, we read about Job's friends. And Job's friends begin to come on the scene. And to a novice reader, we read this in in Job chapter 2. We say, when Job's three friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and they traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were very difficult to pronounce. I'm going to give it a shot. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights. No one said a word to him because they saw that his suffering was too great for words. So here Job's entire life has been upended in a very short period of time. And to the novice reader, this sounds amazing. Here Job has not just one, not just two, but three friends who are willing to leave their homes. They travel from a distance at great personal cost and expense to themselves to be able to come. And when they arrive, they don't just launch in. They sit with him for an entire week because the the pain of his experience is so significant that it's just too great for words. And we think, oh, wow, that's great. Job's friends really get it. I mean, they sit with him for a week without even trying to kind of jump on board and say anything. And at first we think, well, that's great. But then Job's friends actually open up their mouths. And then we begin to see that at first they're a little tentative, but then they get a little bit more bold And we begin to see that they may not be born for adversity in the same way that we first think that they are. At first, they're a little bit more tentative and encouraging. But as time goes on, Job, because of his experiences, has some serious questions about God and serious questions for God. And his friends are not great at walking with him to give him wise counsel and input into his situation. They actually begin to, over the course of the book, they begin to turn on Job and they begin to probe his life because they are convinced that somehow God has some serious questions for, uh, Job has asked these serious questions of God and he's got it wrong. And they're convinced that it's because Job has sinned against God uh, that he's facing hardship. And so finally Job gets fed up with him. And I love Job's speech in Job chapter 19. It's not going to come up on the side screens, but if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Job, after uh, 18 chapters of this, finally says to his friends, how long will you torture me? How long will you try to crush me with your words? You've already insulted me 10 times. You should be ashamed of treating me so badly. Even if I have sinned, that's my concern, not yours. You think you're better off than I am using my humiliation as evidence of my sin? And he goes on in verse 13. My relatives stay far away. My friends have turned against me. My family is gone. Close friends have forgotten me. My servants and maids consider me a stranger. I'm like a foreigner to them. Even acquaintances won't come around. When I call, they don't even come. I have to plead with them. My breath is repulsive to my wife. Maybe a mourning issue. I don't know. I'm rejected by my own family. Even young children despise me. When I stand to speak, they turn their backs on me. My closest friends 
detest me. Those whom I love turned against me. I have been reduced to skin and bones and have escaped death by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, my friends. The hand of God has been strong on me. In his hour of need, Job turns to his friends and they turn out to be more like acquaintances with bad advice. Unacquainted with Job and his life. Unacquainted with God. And they end up speaking for neither party. They actually make things worse. And here's how I think we can learn a few things about what it looks like and what it doesn't look like to be a good friend to someone in a time of adversity in a personal application section. Some of this is common sense and just a reminder. But one thing that God mentions when he answers Job at the end of the story is that, in fact, Job's friends should have just kept their mouths shut. And so one of the principles for being a good friend to somebody in the time of need that we learn from the book of Job is talk less. Pray more? Sure. Be present more? Absolutely. But talk less. Because platitudes and pleasantries in this, to someone that's going through a significant challenge in their life, they just end up coming off in such a way that ends up hurting them more. They just end up stinking. What are some things that you can think of that sometimes maybe either you unwillingly or somebody that you know that someone has said to somebody in a time of great challenge in their lives and you think, why would you say that? That just sounds so dumb. Can you think of those things? It's a learning experience. Yeah, yeah, for you. Which to the person, I mean, maybe looking back on it, they might find that helpful. But in the moment, is that what you really want to hear? You know, in, I think not. Yeah. What else? Other things you've heard said to somebody in a time of crisis in their lives. You think, why would you say that? I know exactly what you're going through. Yeah. I think, you know, wow, that often comes off as so arrogant that all my experience, and then we usually proceed to download our experience. Well, you know, the things that I learned in this situation, this, that, and the other thing, and try and use it as a teaching moment for them so that they can clearly see what it is that God should be teaching them in that time. Yeah, not so good. What else? Why did you do that? Yeah, and Job's friends certainly are an example of that. They, try, they keep trying to say, well, Job, for sure you must have done something wrong to tick God off because God just doesn't do this to people. Like bad things don't happen to good people in Job's friend's mind. And Job keeps saying, I, nothing I can think of. If you read in the book of Job, Job was actually so careful that he went and offered sacrifice on behalf of his children just in case they might have done something wrong. So Job was real, real careful about these types of things. And so when they go digging, it feels very personally offensive to him, and rightly so. Sometimes, have you ever had people in a situation use a scripture verse for you? They'll come in, they'll sit down beside you, you know, or they'll be in a room, and I can be in, remember sitting in a room with somebody who is dying of cancer, and the person said, well, you know, all things work out for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. I thought, why did you just say that? <laughs> that was not a helpful response to this person. 
when they were asking hard questions about where is God in the middle of this circumstance. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the fact that in order to be a good friend to somebody, we should probably talk less and simply pray and be present more in those situations. The second thing that we learn uh, from Job's friends is that we learn the danger of simplistic answers to questions. And so we learn, don't always try to explain away or solve the problem or challenge. Because this is where Job's friends really begin to get on Job's nerves. They actually weren't there to support him. They may have been at the beginning, but as the book goes on, what we begin to see is that Job's friends are actually there to score theological points. They want to use Job's life as a case study to support their views on how God works in the world and the nature of suffering. So they actually become more interested in having a discussion with each other and giving a lecture to Job on the question of why things, bad things happen to good people than they are on actually hearing Job and his questions and responding in ways that might be helpful. They try to explain the cause of his misery. They try to give Job quick solutions to his problems. And in Job chapter 2 verse 9, his wife gives him a very, very supportive answer as to what he should do to solve his problem. In Job chapter 2 verse 9, Job's wife says, you know what you need to do, Job? You just need to curse God and die. Very supportive spouse. Thank you, honey. (laughs) Nothing like strong support from the family circle in a time of need. But Job's friends do something of a similar Uh, posture. They try to explain the part of God and explain away his challenge. And so sometimes we find ourselves wanting to try and jump in as a friend and give an answer or create a way forward for someone through the situation, particularly if, as Arnie said, you might use the language of, well, I know exactly how you're feeling or thinking because you might have an experience that somewhat parallels there. So you jump in and say, this is what we did. I think your next step should be called this. Do this, call that person, all those types of things, which may be helpful. But oftentimes, we may not actually be listening to and sensitive to the place in which our friend is at that moment. We may be actually trying to just enforce our agenda or our ideas or our theology on them at that moment. So those might be some of the personal application pieces for this morning. The other application piece goes back to these circles. It might be a good fodder for discussion in your life group this week. Some of us think that we have lots of people who are generally interested in us. But if push came to shove, we might actually find that they're a little bit more like a Facebook friend than a genuine friend. And as I said before, there's nothing like adversity in our lives to really press into and answer this question for us. And so you may want to think this week and ask and probe in your small group, if you were to face significant adversity starting this afternoon, who would you turn to? If you had a significant challenge that started in your life beginning this afternoon, who would be the people that you would invite into that process? What would that look like? And for some of us, when we begin to think about this, it becomes a challenging exercise because we might begin to realize that we don't have the support structures around us that we think sometimes that we do and that we may need going forward. And remember, even though we're not here to set you up on any playdates, we do have a role in the faith community of creating environments where you can begin to take some 
of those next steps, such as Sunday mornings or small groups or men's gym night or her connecting or serving teams. And in some of those places, in those smaller group contexts, the possibility exists to see a few people move from that acquaintance circle into that friendship one. But there's one thing, maybe more than anything else, that could block that situation from happening. And that is if we're not willing to open our lives up to other people. And so another small group application that you might process and think about and discuss together this week is don't be too proud to let people know when you need help as an individual. Some of you are actually in the midst of very challenging situations right now. And I'm going to ask the worship and song team if they would come. And they're going to lead us in some songs of reflection. And some of you actually need to hear a gentle reminder this morning of the fact that God has not forsaken you or left you alone. You may need a reminder in the context of a gathered community that God is very present help in times of trouble. But not only is God on your side, but you need to know that one of our core values is authentic community and that we are on your side as Jericho Ridge, as a community. And so we want to be here for you in ways that we can. And one of the ways that we can do this is our prayer team is going to be available to you as we move into a time of response and reflection in song. And some of you need to be bold enough to head over to the tables at the side and to be able to say, you know what, I need someone to stand with me in this time of challenge in my life. You may want to head over there and express that personally, or you may want to head over there and say, I've got somebody in my circle of friends who needs the support of someone praying with them. And so could I invite you as an individual on our prayer team to pray with me about this particular situation? But know that these are people that are trained and that are available and want to help you and be with you for that very purpose. And so some of you need to have the humility and the guts necessarily to just walk across the room and sit down and say, you know what, I need help. I'm in a place in my life right now where I need to open up to somebody and I need to let other people into my life in a new way. For some of you, that might look like a small group and you may say, you know what, I need to take that step. I need to be there tonight and figure out what that would look like to get connected with people in a more authentic way. I also want to remind you this morning that if you're here and you've never actually taken that step or the, the language of Proverbs 17, 17 says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that text uh, can be very representative of a picture of what God can look like in your life. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, but I want to put that out there for you this morning, that your acquaintances, your friends, your family, all of those circles at some point in your life will let you down. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. But there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. God wants to be in your life in a way that he can respond to you in those times of need and challenge. And maybe for you today is that day. And maybe you want to go over to the prayer team and say, I need to talk with somebody more about what that looks like to invite God to be in charge of my life, maybe for the first time. As I said, authentic community is one of our values here. We want to do that and press into that by helping to clarify our terms and to step into deeper circles of authenticity and friendship and see what God does in and through 
each of us as we learn to stand in community with each other. I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to respond in song this morning.